0: We are in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 today, continuing our long series on um, the Gospel of Matthew, which is going to be awesome. I've been enjoying it so far. I hope you have been. Um, This week was interesting as I read it. You know, it's such a familiar Christmas story. But the more I studied it, the deeper I went in and found out there's so much in here that I'd never seen before. So hopefully it encourages you as we jump into the text and the Lord speaks to you through His Word. Um, As Richie said earlier, we saw last week, you know, the identities of Jesus that are announced at his, you know, in the angelic dream to Joseph. That Jesus really is the Christ. He is the son of David because Joseph adopts him. That he's the Savior who's come to take away our sins. And that, shockingly, you know, he is Emmanuel, God with us, which is mind-boggling reality to begin our gospel narrative. Um, So we're going to continue today. And as Matthew continues in this section he's still laying the framework for his reader as to the identity and the purpose of his letter and really trying to show them who Jesus is and how he connects to the Old Testament and how this new thing um, makes sense. So we're going to be jumping in there today. So would you read with me Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? A very familiar passage, I'm sure. Now, after Jesus was born... In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, by another way. Would you join me in prayer? Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the preaching of your word this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I've been, um, in the evenings, I've been reading to my children the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm not sure if you've read that series by C.S. Lewis, but it's, a, you know, it's an epic saga where the same sort of characters weave all the way through. And we just this week came to the end, the final story, the last battle, um, where all the kind of loose ends are tied together. And I've been loving reading the book, and each one, as you learn a bit more of the story as you go through... And I love my kids' reactions as they read the story because every time they see you know, a character that's appeared in a previous story or like a mention to a character, they get really excited and they perk up or they say, oh my goodness. Secondly, when they see some kind of link from the story to the Christian faith and they think, oh my, that, that's like heaven or well, that's like Jesus dying for our sins or yeah, they see all these links, there's all this excitement and this kind of you know, awe and wonder and amazement. And as we come, we come to the book of Matthew, for the Old Testament reader, they would have had this kind of level of anticipation and excitement because they knew the, the backstory really well. Um, and so you know, as I read through Narnia, I was even crying at the end of it because you know, I knew what C.S. Lewis was trying to paint this picture of what heaven would be like and this anticipation of going further up and further in and just all these symbolic images were coming to mind. I was like, oh my goodness, I want to go to heaven And as we come to a text like this, you know, this passage about the wise man, at first look for us, we kind of might look at it and just think, this is just, you know, a Christmas nativity, you know, narrative filler point in Matthew's gospel. Like Jesus is born and this is just sort of the next thing that happens. And so we kind of read it and think there's not that much going on in this passage, you know, could do without it. But as we come to any passage in the Bible, it's a great question to ask, why is this Passage here, and what would we miss if Matthew never told us this story? You know, why did Matthew put this here? And I'm going to give you a clue, it's a lot more than just the reality that you know, some magi dudes went a long way to give Jesus some gold. Okay, but like this, it's more than just a cute nativity scene, there's a lot more going on here. In fact, as we come to this passage, you would have noticed. The repetition, you may have noticed, the repetition of that word king. Herod the king, Christ the king, the king, the king, the king. This passage is actually about two kings and really the war between them. And so that's the title for the message today, The Two Kings. And we're going to see what Matthew has to tell us about Jesus Christ being king. We're going to see just how rich and beautiful this passage is and how it links in with all that's come before in the Old Testament. And it's going to challenge us to see how we respond. How do we respond to a story like this? What is Matthew calling us to do? Just like C.S. Lewis is trying to get kids as they read his novel to have this anticipation of heaven and this anticipation of these heavenly realities, Matthew is calling from a response from us. Even though it just looks like a narrative story, he's asking us a question. Who do you think Jesus is? So we've got three points today to kind of unpack this passage. Point number one, the king of the Jews. Point number two, the king of the world. And point number three, responding to the king. So let's jump in. Point number one today, the king of the the Jews. I'm going to read the first two verses again for us to kind of, you know, Matthew sets the scene here and gives us all the characters. So let's jump in. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise man came from the east to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star When it rose and have come to worship him. So, straight away, um, Matthew's setting the scene. So, Jesus, which means the Lord saves, has been born. He's been born in Bethlehem of Judea. He tells us that because there's actually a Bethlehem in Galilee where Jesus grew up, um, which is a significant point because it's really important that Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea, as we'll see later. And then he tells us that he was born in this particular time period. You know, Jesus isn't just a mythological figure that we can slot at any period of time. He was born into history. He was born during the reign of Herod, the king. Um, And so Herod, what we know from history about him is that he wasn't actually a Jewish man by birth, um, but he was sort of half Jewish. Um, Idumean was his father, his mother was Arabian, and Rome installed him as like a sort of you know, client king in Israel to take over. He was a brilliant man, incredibly strategic in battle and in building. He rebuilt the temple. He rebuilt a huge um, amount of architecture throughout ancient Rome. But he was also a little bit crazy too. Um, he had his, one of his wife murdered. He had some of his sons murdered because he was so hungry and scared about losing his power. Um, and he died in about 4 BC. So we've got Herod. The king of the Jews, that was his title in those days. He was known as the king of the Jews by those who weren't Jewish, right? They didn't think of him as that. Then the next character that's brought in by Matthew are the wise men. You know, you know we three kings from Orient land, the old you know, Christmas carol. Um, this idea of you know, three wise men that come and visit Jesus on the night that he's born is a cute idea, but it's not the reality. We, we don't know how many wise men there were. There could have been three, there could have been two, there could have been 40. Um, It doesn't say. There were three gifts, but we don't know how many wise men there actually were. And they probably weren't on their own. Um, They traveled from the east, which could be Persia or Babylon, like modern-day Iraq or modern-day Iran. Somewhere along that way, they traveled a huge amount of miles to visit this newborn king. So there was probably a caravan, a huge number of people, attendants. Um, They were wise men. Um, So in that time period, they were basically wise stargazers. So pagan people that thought that they could tell the destiny from what the stars were telling them. Um, Potentially, um, the word magi is like the base word for magic. So some magi were magicians and practiced dark arts. And so to introduce a character like this into a Jewish story is really odd uh, because the Jewish people are very, you know, Skeptical of magic and think it comes from the evil one. And so to have magic men being the first, you know, kind of public witnesses to Jesus' birth is a troubling element, which would only be included if it was just the unescapable reality that this is actually what happened. So you've got King Herod, this tyrant, installed as king of the Jewish people, but not really king. You've got these magic dudes. We don't know their background, but probably rich, wealthy, lots of power, come from a long way. And then you've got this star, you know, this miraculous, supernatural star that, that guides them through, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles. And what to make of this, we don't know. Um, different people over time have tried to link. Was there some kind of meteorological, cosmological event that happened that we can say, oh, it was Halley's Comet passing or it was, you know, some other supernova um, but I think from reading this text, it's very difficult to link it to any particular natural phenomenon, um, at, least a, at least later on when the star moves. And it seems to be a supernatural phenomenon that the Lord brought about to lead these men to meet Jesus. Um, that, that's my best reading is I don't know if we'll ever find by you know, looking at the star's patterns, just it happened naturally. I think it was probably a supernatural thing. But also, for the Jewish readers, it actually brings back an old prophecy. So a star rising and signifying a king takes us back to Numbers chapter 24, when um, one of these foreign kings was trying to get rid of Israel at the time, and so they, they called upon this prophet, Balaam, to cut, you know, curse the, the Jewish people. But instead, Balaam um, comes up with you know, a prophetic word from the Lord, and instead of cursing them, blesses them. And Balaam says this, um, and he's, he's talking like the Lord shows him something, and then he says this in verse 17. I see him, that is the Lord, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Shef. Um, Shef, not Shef. So you've got this prophetic word which, you know, in that time the wise man potentially knew. They they may have known of this ancient prophecy that a star, and they took it literally, a star would rise out of Jacob, out of the people of Israel, that's what Jacob means. And so they're tracking this star thinking maybe this is leading us to the, the scepter that will rise out of Israel, this great ruler that will come. And so they travel this incredibly long distance following this prophecy, following this star, which in those days they thought, miraculous stars were linked to you know significant events with kings and so they get all the way down into jerusalem and they go to the most obvious place they go to the king's court in the capital city in jerusalem and we'll see what happens they kind of raise a problem because they go to the king expecting the king's son to have been born and find a different reality let's read verse 2 again Where is he, they say to King Herod, who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Note that they have already proclaimed him born King. They didn't say, where is he who is born who will grow up to be King? They've said, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? They're already thinking that this star is representing the King who has been born. Could You imagine how this went down in Herod's court? You <laughs> know, uh, what do you mean? You know, I am the king of the Jews. What are you talking about a, a king being born? I, I'm not sure if the Magi knew, like, the throw the showdown they were throwing down, but they got you know, some kind of reaction out of him. I don't know if it was innocent as they came in, surely they knew that they were being provocative. In fact, they're entrance into Jerusalem probably had the whole town in a bit of stir you know it'd be like the queen coming to town it was like oh we got to get everything ready because these rich people are coming in with the caravan and the camels and so this is what happens look at verse three when Herod the king heard this he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him You see, Herod's reaction is that he is not stoked about this king of the Jews being born. He's troubled. And that's sort of like a polite way of saying, you know, he was greatly disturbed. Um, In the original language, it's, it's more like a sense of agitation, frustration, and panic, and fear. This is a threat to his throne. This is a threat to his kingship. This is a threat to everything, you know, that he has going for him in the world. He's the king. And now you're saying... The prophecy has come true when a king has been born, and not just Herod was disturbed, but all Jerusalem with him instead of you know, the Israelites being excited that wow, the, the scepter the, the, the star of Jacob has come, the king has been born they 're freaking out now we don 't know why they were terrified, but potentially because they knew the kind of man that Herod was, right. <laughs> They're thinking, oh, this is not going to end well for us. A threat to his throne means a threat to our livelihoods, which is exactly what happens later on. So what happens? Let's read verse 4 and 6. How does Herod respond to this announcement of a king? And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Note that Herod has already interpreted this. He's seen them come, the the star and everything, the Magi coming, and he knows, oh, this means the Christ has been born. He's drawn the dots that the long-anticipated Redeemer of Israel, the the Anointed One, the King of David, you know, the one from the line of David, he's come. So where is he meant to be? Because he ain't in Jerusalem right now. Verse 5, you know, the, the chief priests and the scribes, they, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote Micah 5.2. Um, and they also, Matthew records it with a bit of a 2 Samuel 5.2 as well. Um, so you can look those verses up later. And he actually changes the text a little bit to suit his purpose. And it's, it's really brilliant, but I won't go into detail now. We can talk about it later if you want. This is the text. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So, where is the Christ to be born? They give the easy, like, this is like Sunday School 101 for the chief priests and the scribes. It's like Bethlehem, of course, in Judea. That's where we've been waiting for this prophecy to come true. This ruler, this, this shepherd of my people Israel, that's where he's going to come from. So why does Matthew include this story? You know, as he's writing his gospel, he doesn't have to tell us about the wise men and the Magi. He doesn't have to tell us this story. But it's actually really important in that context for this story to be told. Because if you know anything about Jesus, in history, Jesus is referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, Nazareth is in Galilee, which is miles to the north. Yet all the prophetic word says that Jesus must be born in Bethlehem of Judea. So Jesus was known as Jesus of Nazareth, but he was actually born in Bethlehem and had to be born in Bethlehem. So Matthew includes the the whole point, part of the whole point of this story of the wise man is to give a geographic apologetic to describe to the original people in that day that Jesus, though he lived in Nazareth of Galilee, as we'll see next week, he was actually born in Bethlehem. Therefore, just like we saw last week, he is able to be the Messiah. Just like Joseph had to adopt Jesus to put him in the line of David for him to be the Messiah, well, he too had to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And so Matthew was telling his Jewish audience and anyone who understood the time, Jesus really can be the The king of the Jews, because he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. He can be what this passage says a ruler and a shepherd. This idea of a shepherd for the people of Israel brings together both God, who he calls himself the shepherd of his people, and his model for kingly rule. The kings of Israel were meant to be shepherding the people. David was the shepherd of Israel. And so to bring this passage together, these, you know, chief priests and scribes accidentally saying, this little baby who is born, who we haven't met yet, is the ruler who is God, who is king. The rightful king of the Jews. This is a whether they know it or not, this is a direct threat to Herod's kingship. So what does Herod do? Let's look at verse 7 and 8. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship You know, we get this kind of dramatic irony, as we're going to see later, that that's not at all what Herod wants to do. He wants to know, how old could this baby possibly be so I can get rid of him? So he sends the wise men off to extinguish this rival king of the Jews. Herod rightly perceives Jesus as a threat. A threat to his kingship, a threat to his independence, a threat to his autonomy. A threat to his rule, a threat to his reign, a threat to his wealth, a threat to his riches. Jesus needs to be dealt with, though he doesn't know his name yet. And so Herod's evil plan is hatched. He sends the wise men out to go and find this one born king of the Jews. Herod is concerned about his little kingdom. And when he hears that the king of the Jews is he's born, he's like, I've got to get rid of But Matthew's not dumb. Matthew's proved to us and anyone who knew the old prophecies that Jesus really can be and is the King of the Jews because he was born in Bethlehem. That's part one of what Matthew's trying to get done in this passage. But he's not dumb. He's got more. And Jesus isn't just to be the King of the Jews. Matthew's going to show us that, and that's point two, that Jesus is actually the King of the whole world. Let's read verse 9 again, and let's jump into the second point, the king of the world. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, we don't know exactly how this happened. I believe it must have been a supernatural, miraculous event for this star to guide them through the night. How exactly it happened, I don't know. I'm sure it was just as hard for them to believe as it may be for us to believe now. But nonetheless, they see a star and it guides them through you know, the six-mile journey from Jerusalem down south into Bethlehem and potentially even hovers over a particular house or just over the particular region nonetheless these wise men see it and they start following it and they see it as a miraculous sign from god it's, it's sort of like in the old testament when the pillar of the cloud leads the israelites by day and the pillar of fire by night to bring them safe from harm the wise men get this supernatural guidance from god because they need it they can't find him without it and i love what john piper says about this moment he says God wields the universe to make his son known and worshipped. See, remember, these wise men aren't just on like a, like a fun journey, like we're you know, archaeologists, we're just kind of digging up the path, trying to find out. At the beginning, we were told that they have a mission. They've come to pay homage to this new king. They've come to worship him. They've come with gifts. They're, they see something significant Something important about this baby that they would go to such lengths. And God, in His mercy and in His grace, gives them this supernatural sign. He wields the universe so that they can meet King Jesus and worship Him. And verse 10, this is how they react when they see the star, you know, the first GPS system. Actually, my, 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 my I'll say this because He said it. Okay. My, my wife's uncle is Jewish, and he called it GPS. That's what he called it. Okay. Even though the Magi, they, they weren't Jewish, but it was the world's first GPS, he said, and it was actually GPS. So there you go. That's David Smeat. If anyone wants some good stand up comedy, David Smeat. There you go. Shout out to you, Uncle David. Verse 10, when they see GPS, this is what happens. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's Bible for they were stoked, right? <laughs> okay, they were, they were pretty happy chappies, um, and they were, you know, their whole being. Like, this is an attempt, the Bible writers, to express just the utmost of joy. Fullness of joy, overflowing joy. I don't know what ancient magi did to express their joy. Did they skip? Did they, you know, shout? Did they say, Ew! you know, I don't know what they did, but whatever they did, whatever was appropriate, they did that. Verse 11. The moment that they've been waiting for, the moment that they've traveled all this time for, the moment that they feel supernaturally led to has come. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Could you imagine this beautiful scene? These holy and majestic, you know, royal, crazy magi dudes from a far off country potentially coming with a whole squadron and caravan of people. It's a little Bethlehem, which at the time was a tiny little hick town. It was nothing special, it was a very small clan, a very small people. And here they are with all this pomp and, you know, everything going on, yet they enter the house and they see Mary and presumably Joseph with her. And they see the baby who is born. The star has told them this is who it is. And their reaction, their instinctive reaction to him, is to fall down and, and as was custom in the east, face to the ground, pay homage to the king of the Jews. They bring out the treasures, the gold, which was only given for kings and frankincense and and myrrh, these beautiful spices and ointments that were incredibly expensive at the time. Think about Joseph and Mary. Just how would they be reacting in this moment? Like, what are you dudes doing here? But we'll take the gold. Thank you. Uh, You know, why are you bowing down before our son? I mean, I know that they knew, in a sense, who he was. But every time something happens, I could imagine them just being like, is this really true? Like, Our son's being worshipped. You know, Doug and Chris just had a baby, two babies this week. I don't think any Magi's came into Westmead Hospital and laid down prostrate before their children. Even though they have epic names, Reuben and Moses, they didn't get nothing. It's actually reminiscent of three Old Testament passages, this scene. If you know the story of King Solomon and all his glory and splendor, the Queen of Sheba from Egypt comes To his court, and is so overawed with the majesty and glory and riches of Jerusalem and the wisdom of Solomon that she gives him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. This queen of the south, this non Jewish woman, pays homage to the king. It's actually a theme that runs from the very beginning from Abraham that the nations, all the various people of the world, will come before the people of Israel. And be blessed by them. You see, it's no mistake that these Magi aren't Jewish Magi. They are Easterners. They are from the nations. That was God's original plan that the whole world would come under the rule of King Jesus. And here it begins. This is fulfillment of the covenant promise to Abraham that was promised all the way through the rest of the Old Testament that the nations would come before God's people. Let me read to you two other sections in in Old Testament Scripture which paint this scene. You know, this is that Narnia moment for any of the Old Testament Jews who knew their Bible well. They're like, whoa, this really happened. Like, this this means something else is happening. Check out Psalm 72. Now, remember, all these names mentioned are non-Jewish places, okay? May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. If you read all of Psalm 72, it's this, great poem about the king being worshipped by all the nations and it's this sense of this Messiah figure who will bring and unify the entire world Toward the end of Isaiah as he's prophesying to the exiled people who have blown it with God, God gives them this promise Arise shine for your light has come this is Isaiah 60 and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, star, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall, shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so Matthew is making a vivid point to us and to his readers that Jesus is not just king of the Jews, Herod. He is king of the entire world. He's king of the nations. He's the one that's been promised from long ago. He's fulfilling the entire storyline of the Bible. And in fact, Jesus himself knows this. In Matthew 8:11, he says this, I tell you, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You see, in Israel, God's plan was that it would be a light to the nations and the nations would come to them. But through Christ, God's plan is that we would be a light to the nations and we would go to them. So here we have the nations being, or the Israel being fulfilled in Jesus, the nations come and they see the light. But through Jesus, we thou take up that light and go into the nations with the message that the King has come. And that's part of what Matthew is prefiguring in this passage. You know, it's going to end with the, the great commission to go into all nations and make disciples. So part of the purpose of this passage here is for us to see that all nations can and ought to worship Jesus. David Platt says it like this, The global purpose of God is the glad praise of Christ among the peoples of the world. Mind-blowing for a very one-nation-centered people. We take it for granted, just look at the room, we see the nations, right? But for them, it's like, oh wow, God's really doing a thing here. But for us today, we can look back and go, wow, Herod got told, you know, he ain't the king of the Jews anymore. But this reality that Jesus is king over all peoples, over all nations, over all rulers at all times, hits home today. To all world leaders, whether you be Scott Morrison or Donald Trump or you know, the leaders in New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, or in China, or in any nation, every king, every president, every ruler, every premier in all the world is called in this passage to bow down before King Jesus. Every land, every government, all peoples, all nations, everywhere, at all times are called to worship King Jesus. This isn't just a message for the geopolitical sphere back in 1st century AD. This is for the 21st century today. If Scott Morrison, or he is a follower of Jesus, praise the Lord. But if other world leaders were here, we could boldly and confidently and humbly look them in the face and say, Friend, no matter the power you have, you are called, like these wise men, to fall down in worship before Jesus. And to that end, we ought to pray. To that end, we ought to expect of our leaders and our governments and our nations to bow the knee to King Jesus, to bend their rules and their wills and their desires to the Lord Jesus' will. There is no sacred, secular divide. All people, all governments, all lands ought to be submitted to Jesus Christ, recline at his table and benefit from his sacrificial death. The great hope of our world is not democracy. It's not the spread of democratic rule to all nations. The great hope of our world is a theocracy. The rulership of King Jesus in all places. That's our hope. And that's what Matthew is calling his readers to see in this passage as these wise men bow down. That's the hope that we ought to be filled with and should fill our prayers. So, we've seen that Jesus is legitimately the king of the Jews, not like Herod. He's also the king of the world. And finally, Matthew now kind of turns this whole story, and well the whole point of this, the third point of this story is to turn it back on the reader and ask this question. Who do you think Jesus is? How do you respond to this message about King Jesus? It's point number three, responding to to the king you see in this passage matthew's actually given us a variety of different responses it's kind of designed in this didactic way to for you to walk through the characters and see the different angles and lenses by which they viewed jesus and you have the jews the, the old testament the people of god in jerusalem they knew a lot but they were troubled by this message that jesus had been born they were troubled by this idea that the king was coming, maybe because it meant disruption. Maybe it meant their lives would be hindered by Herod. and So they, they didn't even go and search for him. Even the chief priests and the scribes who knew the Old Testament Scriptures, they were indifferent at best, complacent. They knew that the star had come and the Christ was born and he was in Bethlehem of Judea. And where, did they go with the wise man? They stayed still. They were indifferent. And perhaps that represents you. You may have heard of the Christian faith, the Christian truth. You may have been in church many times. But you're indifferent to it. You're not yet resolved or moved to action. And this passage is crying out to you and saying you are missing out. You are missing out on being a subject of the King, this great King Jesus. So don't be complacent, don't just learn and learn and learn and go nowhere with your knowledge. Let your learning about King Jesus lead you to worship King Jesus like it did for the wise men. And even for some of us who are followers of Jesus, we can be just so complacent about him. You know, going to reading our Bible, going into prayer, going into worship, we can just be like, yeah, it's yeah, worshipping King Jesus. He's in Bethlehem. And we don't have that sense of like, I've got I to gotta get to King Jesus like these Magi did. Secondly, you may have hostility like Herod. He hated King Jesus. We're going to see next week that he tries to put him to death, massacres a whole town of young boys. Because he represents, Jesus represents a disruption and a threat to your autonomy and independence as an individual. The claim of Jesus is that you bow the knee you get on board and follow the king and it's he's a great king but he demands complete obedience and that can make people angry that can make you frustrated potentially you don't want to surrender to a king you want to be autonomous you want to be free you don't want to be told what to do are you hostile like king herod but ultimately obviously matthew is pointing to the wise men and saying this is the proper and right response to knowing who Jesus is. Sacrificial pursuit of Him over land and sea, or maybe not sea, but seas of desert, let's say that. Over far distances. Sacrificial with their treasures. They, They opened up their treasure boxes and gave extremely costly gifts and joyful worship. When they saw the star they were pumped. They were excited. When they saw King Jesus, they paid homage to him face down. And so for us, Matthew is saying to us, you know, how do you respond to King Jesus? Well, be like the, the wise men. Sacrificially pursue him. Joyfully serve him. Be in awe of his presence and bow the knee to King Jesus. But why should we? You know, I was chatting to a friend about this passage and he said, I don't know enough about Jesus yet to make that decision. I was like, okay, that's fine. But when we go further into the story, we see that the type of king Jesus is. You see, Herod ruled by might and fear, whereas Jesus rules by love and self-sacrifice. Herod ruled by bringing death and killing people that got in his way. And Jesus rules by bringing life and dying in order to free his subjects you can trust king jesus you can lay down your treasures and your life and everything you have at his feet and trust him because he's the good king no other political leader can save us no other political leader will die for you but king jesus has and so worship him enjoy him let's finish the passage verse 12 we see king herod's plan foiled and being warned in a dream not to return to herod they departed to their own country by another way that's going to lead us into next week's story we're not going to go there today but we even see just in an early way how this king tries to ruin god's plan but he can't he can't win Because Jesus wins. Jesus rules and God's plan always accomplishes what he sets out to do. We've seen today that Jesus is the King of the Jews. He's legitimately the one that the Old Testament prophesied about. Jesus is the King of the nations, of the whole world. Every single one of us and every single person breathing now and into the future ought to lay allegiance at King Jesus' feet. And we've seen that we need to make a response ourselves. We need to make active decisions about what we do with this message of who Jesus is. And it can be a little bit like, well, this is not very practical, right? You know, tell me what to do with my life, preacher boy. You know, no one's ever said that to me, but sure. But what could be more practical than knowing who Jesus really is? Because if you don't figure out If Jesus is really king, or if you don't know who he is, then there's no obligation for you to do anything with any message about him. But if you can be proved to by Scripture that he is the king, then everything he says and everything he calls you to is of utmost importance. Requires total obedience immediately and joyfully. And so it's incredibly practical to have all these passages from Matthew explaining just who Jesus is because it clarifies that everything he says, you ought to do. That's how it's practical. You've got to know who he is. Otherwise, if he's not that, then there's no point following him. He's just a wise guru. I'm going to end by reading Psalm 2. Like I said, this passage has lots of links back to the Old Testament. Lots of links back that you would have seen like a kid reading Narnia going, Oh, there's Lucy. Oh, there's Tom, Oh, Oh, that's heaven. Oh, that's Jesus dying. Oh, that's Jesus resurrecting. Well, this passage takes us back to Psalm 2. I'm going to read that, and then we're going to sing, Let Your Kingdom Come. I'm going to read the whole thing, if I can find it. See, see the links to the passage. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But look how God, like He foils Herod's plan. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Jesus is this King, the Son begotten of the Father, who all the nations come to. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. He came first to love and save the world, but He will come one day to judge the world and bring wrath from God. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. May that be our response to King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word and just how rich it is and complex it is and how there's so much more there when we start digging in than we ever realized. We thank you that this is not just a cute story, but dramatically life-altering. Lord, would you change our lives? Would you help us to bend the knee to your son, to pledge allegiance, and then to actually live out our Monday through Sunday under the lordship of your son? to do what he said to do, to live the way he calls us to live, to do it by his power and for his glory. God, give us grace. We're weak. Forgive us for the times that we do not live with you as our king. God, may we take refuge in you and may you protect us as we live for you in this evil and contended world. Thank you for sending your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.